grab your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback black Bible under the chair in front of you or underneath you. If you're using that Bible, we're going to be on page 869 this morning. Today, as we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke, we've come to one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, this is one of those parables that you don't need to have been raised in the church to have heard of. The idea of a Good Samaritan has, has worked its way into every aspect of our society. It's, it's woven itself into the fabric of our society. Everyone, it seems, knows what it means to be a Good Samaritan. A, a Good Samaritan is someone who helps another person in need, right? Like, we all know what a Good Samaritan is, which is why we've got Good Samaritan hospitals and Good Samaritan laws and Good Samaritan you name it. But as we're looking at this parable together this morning, what we need to recognize is that this parable isn't just teaching us how to be a good person. There's more here for us than just that. This goes deeper than just that. Because in this parable, Jesus is working to help us see something important. He's working to help us see that our love for God expresses itself in a life that is marked by love for others. And that is the main idea of the text we're looking at today. If you get nothing else, get this. We love others not because we want to be good people. We love others out of the overflow of the love that we have received from God. And we express our love for God by obeying his commands and loving other people. That's what we're seeing in this passage. Our love for God expresses itself in a life that is marked by love for others. So with that in mind, let's dive right in. Luke chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 25, and, and it's a fairly short text. We're only going to verse 37. The Bible says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on him, him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the encouragement that it provides. As we look at this parable, Father, would you, 
work in us. Help us to hear from you. Help us to love others the way that you have loved us. Help us to tear down any barriers that might get in the way of loving others, that we would live out our love for you in everything that we do. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word, and it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. If you want to tell a story that's sure to leave a mark on your audience, one of the best tools you can use is the plot twist, right? You, you introduce a radical change in the direction or the expected outcome of your plot, and, and, and you can almost guarantee that your story will be memorable. We all have experienced this. Like, just think about some of the great movies with plot twists that you've seen in your lifetime. I, I mean, like, like, you remember the first time you saw the Star Wars trilogy, right? In The Empire Strikes Back, when, when Vader tells Luke as they're fighting, no, I am your father. I can't do the James Earl Jones voice, but that, that changed everything, right? Like, the, the whole storyline changes in that. Or, or, or maybe the first time you saw that Bruce Willis classic, a sixth sense, and you get to the end of the movie and you find out Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. It changes everything, right? If I had just spoiled the movie, shame on you. Like, those are old movies, right? But, like, a plot twist changes how you see everything, but more than that, it makes it memorable. Now, why am I bringing this up here? Because that's what Jesus is doing here in this parable, Jesus is, is taking and he's inserting a plot twist because he wants his parable to stick with his audience. But he also wants it to evoke a response. Jesus uses these stories often to evoke a response. We've talked about this in the past, right? Like Jesus teaches in parables because he wants his people to react as he's talking to them. But the challenge we encounter with Jesus' parables is that we don't have the same perspective. We don't have the same view of these parables that that original audience would have had. So we're going to have to unpack this a little bit to really feel the weight of it. Now, because we don't have that, that reference, often parables, they're misinterpreted. In fact, I would contend they're some of the most misinterpreted sections of the Bible. There have been times where parables have been treated like allegories where each element in the story is, is meant to represent something, and you have to really work to find that secret, hidden meaning. There have been times where parables have been treated a lot like fables. They're simple stories meant to teach a moral lesson. That's not what parables are about. The reality is Jesus' parables, especially the story parables like we're looking at today, were meant to call forth a response from his audience. Jesus was trying to get his audience to react to what they were hearing and, and then respond in a way that would lead them into life and faith and following. And so if we really want to understand this parable, we need to unpack it a little bit and really look at it to, to see what Jesus is teaching us. And this parable, it all started with this lawyer. Now, the lawyer is, is not a lawyer like we would think of a lawyer. He's not like an expert in civil or criminal law like the lawyers we have today. No, this guy is an expert in the Mosaic law. In fact, likely he's an off-duty priest because priests often served as experts in the law when they weren't performing their duties at the temple. He's part of a group of individuals that we've been seeing all throughout the Gospel of Luke who've been watching Jesus, monitoring Jesus, making sure that Jesus isn't going too far astray. And here... 
Luke makes it clear that as this lawyer comes to Jesus, he's coming to try and trap Jesus in what he's saying. Look at verse 25. Luke tells us, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. The lawyer is is looking to trap Jesus here. So he asks this question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus doesn't fall into the trap. Instead, he redirects. He asks the lawyer what he thinks the law requires. Keep reading in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer responds with the dual commands of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Deuteronomy 6.5 is the heart of the Shema, which is the foundational commandment of the entire Mosaic law. The word Shema means hear, like, like you're hearing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then the lawyer adds on the second half of Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. The lawyer's answer is that eternal life is found when we love God and love people. But it's not just any love. We, We need to see that. This is a whole, complete love. Like the four elements of a person he uses to depict how we love God, they show us that, right? Look at the text again. He says, All your heart, that's your emotions. All your soul, that's your consciousness. All your strength, that's your drive and your energy. All your mind, that's your intelligence. This is a picture of loving God completely with every aspect of your being. But he doesn't just stop there. We don't just love God. We love others too. The lawyer says we must love our neighbors completely too. Which when you think about it, that's how you love yourself, right? You you love yourself completely. You put yourself in first place. You take care of yourself before others. That's how we love, completely. But what we need to recognize here is that the lawyer is right. Life is found when we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might. Life is found when we love our neighbor as ourselves, That's what the law commands. Jesus even told us that in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Like these two commandments right here, love God completely, love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commands, when you bring them together, they sum up all of the Mosaic law, all 613 commandments. And so if you want to find eternal life by obeying the commandments, you do that. The lawyer answered correctly. And in verse 28, Jesus told him so. Take a look. Luke tells us, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But as soon as Jesus told him that, the lawyer did what a lot of us, if we're trying to find life, if we're trying to find righteousness in our behavior, in our ability to follow the rules, the lawyer did what all of us are inclined to do. He looked for the limitations of the rule. He looked for a loophole. In verse 29, Luke tells us, but he, 
the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, you don't want to pass this up here because this is what we all do. The, the lawyer needs to justify himself. He knows how much this command requires. And so he's looking for a loophole. He, he's looking for the boundaries of how far the command goes. You see, he wants to re meet the requirements of the law so that he gets eternal life, but he doesn't want to go any further. And so he's looking for the minimum obedience that's required. And in doing that, he's showing how his whole approach to God is wrong. Because that's not love. That's not what love looks like. Love doesn't say, what's the minimum I have to do? Like, like could you imagine me doing that with my wife? Like, if I went to Tama and I said, Tama, I love you. What's the minimum I have to do each day to show you that I love you? Like, that would not go over well. I'd be sleeping on the couch, right? Why? Because that's not love. Love doesn't look for limits. And what we really need to see, though, is, is that we do this all the time in our relationship with God. We'll ask questions like, is it a sin if I do blank? When you ask a question like that, you're looking for the limit. You're looking to follow the rules. You're looking to find your, your life in following the rules. The better question to ask is, does this glorify God? That's a better question to ask. But we do this all the time. We look for boundaries. We look for loopholes. We want to know the rules so that we can follow them. But what Jesus is going to show us is that being a disciple isn't about following the rules. Loving the Lord, loving your neighbor, isn't about lines that you don't cross. It's about lines that you do cross. It's about allowing that love to extend you beyond your comfort zone. This lawyer knew in his head the right answer, but it hadn't traveled the 18 inches to his heart. What we're being confronted with here is the reality that we can know all the right answers. Like, you can spend your days reading this book from Genesis to the maps in the back, and you can memorize it, you can know it in your head, but if it doesn't make its way to your heart, then you're not truly loving God. And so Jesus is going to correct this attitude by telling a story that has this major plot twist. And that story will help us to see that when we love God completely, we allow that love to overflow out of our lives and manifest itself in a genuine love for others. So the parable begins there in verse 30. Take a look with me. The Bible says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, if we want to understand this, it's helpful to understand a little bit of the geography of Israel. Jericho is northeast of Jerusalem, about 17 miles, and it's more than 3,300 feet lower in elevation. So if you're traveling from Jerusalem to just about anywhere, you're going downhill. And the 17-mile road between the two cities, it winds its way through this rocky desert that's surrounded with caves that made great hideouts for bandits and robbers. And, and this was an incredibly dangerous road. Everyone in that day knew that. They all knew it had an established reputation. You didn't travel this road by yourself. 
but we miss that, right? Like, so, so if you were going to hear this story for the first time here today, maybe the story would start with me saying, hey, a man walked down a dark alley late at night in downtown Los Angeles. You know that story is going to go poorly, right? Like, like, you don't do that. That's what's happening here. But then the man, Jesus tells us, is ambushed. A gang of robbers come and surround him, and they strip him and beat him and leave him to die. He's alone in the rocky wilderness, completely helpless, without hope. That's how this story begins. And even though he's alone, in the wilderness, about to die, as Jesus continues, it looks like help is coming. Keep reading there in verse 31. Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Like things are looking up. A priest is coming. This priest is the representative of the Jewish religion. He's God's servant who ministers in the temple and represents the pinnacle of righteousness and love for God. Like of all people, he's the guy who knows what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. He's the guy who knows better than anyone else what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Surely he's going to help, right? But he doesn't. Look at the rest of the verse. Luke tells us, now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest didn't help the man in need. Now, all throughout Christian history, Christians have tried to figure out, like, why didn't he help him? Like, what was the motivation? And there's been lots of speculation. Maybe he didn't want to be ceremonially unclean by coming in contact with a corpse. Maybe he was worried about the robbers, that they would come and ambush him too. The the reality, though, we we don't know why he didn't. It it doesn't even matter. The point is that he didn't help. His motivations aren't the point. The point is that he saw the man, and then he passed by on the other side of the road. This man, the, the priest, who is a descendant of Aaron, a leader of the people, he's a man who knew the commandment. He knew what was expected, and he was expected to set an example for the rest of Israel to follow. This man saw the injured man on the side of the road in need, and he chose to do nothing. He did worse than nothing, though. He went across to the other side. He went out of his way to not help him. The whole point of the priest is that he was unwilling to love this stranger like a neighbor. And really quick, as we think about the point of Jesus' parables, this this should grab our attention. Remember, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to a lawyer, most likely a priest. Like Jesus is getting in this guy's face as he answers the question. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Take a look at verse 32. So likewise, a Levite. Now, now, if the priest didn't help, surely the Levite's going to help, right? Like a a Levite is also part of the tribe of Levi. His job was to help in the worship and the different aspects of of the worship at the temple. Surely this guy's going to help, right? But he doesn't. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Again, the hope of rescue is crushed. The the Levite saw the man in need, 
But instead of helping, like the priest, he went out of his way to avoid him. He didn't show love to the man. Now, if the lawyer is not a priest, he is certainly a Levite. Again, Jesus is in this guy's face. But the story isn't over. And as Jesus continues, he's going to come right to the heart of the matter with a twist in the story that will catch everyone off guard. Now, now in this story, before we move on, I, I need you to recognize that Jesus is stepping down through the social hierarchy of Israel. Right? He's, he started with a priest up at the top, and then he stepped down to a Levite. What's the next step? Like the average Israelite, right? The average Israelite. Maybe Jesus is preaching a message here that says that you don't need to look up to the clerics, but just be a good Israelite. That's, that's what Jesus is building his audience's expectation of. But that's not where Jesus goes. He builds that expectation so that he can pull the rug out from under them and throw them off so that they hear the message. Jesus is setting them up to expect one thing, only to take them completely by surprise. So keep reading there in verse 33. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Now we, we have to stop right here for a moment because if we don't, we won't feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here. Because that word Samaritan, when we read that word, for us, worst case scenario, Samaritan, that word is neutral. Right? It's, it's not a bad word. In fact, for many of us, it's a good word, good Samaritan. Samaritan's purse. Like, like Samaritan is a good word for us, but that wasn't the case in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, Samaritan was a bad word. Pastor Ben talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? To Jesus' audience, the Samaritans were half-breed heretics. To, to Jesus' audience, these were the people that they would pray and ask God not to hear their prayers. If you're a good Jew eating at the table with a Samaritan, that was on par with just having yourself a pulled pork sandwich. It was completely unacceptable. It was completely defiling. Samaritans were the enemy. They represented everything that a good Israelite stood against. And as Jesus flips the script here, we need to recognize how unwelcome this Samaritan's arrival would have been. Like, like you need to understand this. So, so if Jesus was here in the room with us today and he was telling us this story, he wouldn't say Samaritan. He would say, and behold, a Hamas fighter came down the road. That's a little bit uncomfortable, right? Like, we don't like that, right? That's what Jesus is doing, and he's doing it on purpose. To Jesus' audience, the arrival of the Samaritan is not signaling the rescue for this wounded man. He's the villain of the story. And as we keep reading, though, we need to keep that in mind. So Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Do, do you see it now? The villain of the story is the hero. He sees the man and he decides to treat him like a neighbor. He interrupts his journey to help him. 
He goes to him. He cleans his wounds. He bandages them. Then he sacrifices his own transportation, choosing to walk the rest of the way so that this man can ride on his animal. He takes him to an inn. And he takes care of him overnight. And the next day, he goes down to the innkeeper, and he pays the, he, he pays the innkeeper for the night. And he tells him, hey, anything more, it's on me. I'll take care of it when I get back. The Samaritan is the hero. That's the plot twist that's meant to catch everyone off guard. That's the twist that's meant to elicit a change and lead them into a life of following and faith. So as Jesus finishes his story, he asks the lawyer there in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. Jesus is saying, you asked, who's my neighbor? What do you think? Which one of these three do you think lived out the command that you know by heart? You see, Jesus is making this point in, in a jarring and confrontational way that it's not enough to just know the command to love God completely, that it's not enough to know the command to love your neighbor as yourself. You actually have to do it. We have to live it out. And we know that based on how all of this comes to an end. In verse 36, Jesus asked the lawyer, in essence, who lived out the command to love your neighbor best? And then there in verse 37 we see the lawyer's response. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Do you see how caught off guard the, the lawyer is right here? He won't even say the word Samaritan. Like he can't get it past his head that the Samaritan is the good guy, but he knows the correct answer. So he says, the one who showed him mercy. And his answer is correct. We know that because his answer is immediately followed by the second command Jesus gives in this account. The first command came in verse 28. After the lawyer answered Jesus' question about what the law says, when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, Luke tells us in verse 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. That was the first command. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. But here in the second half of verse 37, we encounter the second command. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Don't pass over that. Feel the weight of that command. You know what Jesus just said to him? You go and be like the Samaritan. You go and show mercy. You go and love your neighbor. You go and live this out. That's what he's saying. But what we also need to notice is that these two commands right here, they're connected. When we love God with everything we have, with every part of our lives, we will obey his commands. It's the natural outflow of our love, which means that we will love our neighbors. And we won't limit who our neighbor is to a specific group of people. 
People who look like us, people who think like us, people who vote like us, people who agree with us. Because we recognize that our neighbor is anyone and everyone that we can love and serve. That's who our neighbor is. Our love for God expresses itself in a life that is marked by a love for others. That's what this parable is teaching us here. And now that we see that, now that we've worked through the parable, we can take it and apply it to our lives. After all, Jesus said, you go and do likewise. You go and love your neighbor like the Samaritan did. So how did the Samaritan love his neighbor? Really quick, I've got four quick applications for you here. I want you to see these from the parable. First, I'd like you to notice that the Samaritan's love was deliberate. Jesus told us that as the Samaritan was on his journey, he saw the injured man and he did something about it. We shouldn't pass that over because he didn't have to do something, right? After all, the first two guys didn't do anything. In fact, they they went out of their way to make sure they didn't do anything. But the Samaritan was deliberate. He saw the man and he made a deliberate decision to act. Now, you, you have to know this, right? On their own, this Jewish man and the the Samaritan, they wouldn't have been neighbors. They wouldn't have considered each other to be neighbors. They would have been enemies. But when we love God and we love others the way that we're commanded to, the way we love ourselves, that love is deliberate. That love looks for opportunities to be lived out. And when we do that, we'll begin to see that everybody is somebody who needs to be loved. And then we'll go about doing something. We'll begin to recognize that God puts people in our lives so that we can be their neighbor, even if we wouldn't choose them to be our neighbor. I keep hounding you on this because I need you to take hold of this and internalize it. God has placed every single one of you where he's put you so that you can live this out, right? And what that means is that where you work, where you go to school, where you uh, go about encountering people in your lives, that's not an accident. God has put you there so that they can be our neighbors and we can love them and share the gospel with them so that we can live this command out. We can see that they have a need and we're able to meet that need. So this love was deliberate. But I also want you to see that this love was compassionate. There at the end of verse 33, Jesus says that when the Samaritan saw the man, he had compassion. He saw the man as he was. He didn't see a Jew. He didn't see a Samaritan. He saw an injured man in desperate need of help, and so he helped him. And our love should be the same way. We can see people as they are, men and women created in the image of God in desperate need of a Savior. We can look past whatever might try to divide us. They don't have to be like us. We can love them even though though they're different than us. We can love them even if they're trapped in their addiction and their sin. 
We can love them regardless of how they vote. We can love them regardless of whether they make more money than us or less money than, than us. We can love them because they don't need to be like us. We can see them like God sees them. We can love them with the same compassionate love that we have received from Christ because that's the kind of love we're called to extend. This was compassionate love. But third, I'd also like you to see that the Samaritan's love was sacrificial. The Samaritan was on a journey in the middle of a desert. Don't pass that over. And he stopped. He gave up his time and his energy in order to help this man. He went over to the man and he bandaged up his wounds. Do you recognize the dude wasn't carrying a first aid kit? Which means that he had to take off, scholars think, probably his turban and tear it up into strips and make bandages for him from his own clothing. He had to sacrifice his time and his energy. This was inconvenient for him. It interrupted his plans. It interrupted his journey. The Samaritan made a sacrifice in order to love this man. And church, I'm going to keep telling you this. I need you to hear me on this. If we're going to love our neighbors well, it's going to be the same thing for us. It will require sacrifice. We will have to give up something in order to love others well. We're going to have to give up our time. There may be times where loving our neighbors the way Christ has called us to means it's going to derail all of our plans for the day. Or maybe for the week. Maybe even longer. It may be inconvenient for us, but that's what it means to love your neighbor sacrificially. You put yourself aside, you put them first, which is what we naturally want anyway, right? We want to be first. That's what it means to love yourself. This love was sacrificial. The Samaritan gave of himself for the sake of this broken, dying man, expecting nothing in return. But finally, the fourth thing I'd like you to see is that this love was costly. The Samaritan paid a price to love this man. Jesus says he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And, and there in verse 35, he says the next morning he took out two denarii and he paid the innkeeper. I've told you this before, but a denarius is a day's wages for average laborer. If you want to translate that into modern U.S. dollars, if you earn about $50,000 a year, we're talking about $500 right here. He paid $500 for a complete stranger. And then he wrote a blank check. He said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This love was costly, and we're called to love like that also. It may cost us financially, like, like take out your wallet, and well, it's empty, but it, it, it may cost you <laughs> to love the way we're called to love. But we're able to do that because we know that God has loved us. We're able to do that because he has loved us with that same kind of costly love. Our love for God expresses itself in a life that is marked by love for others. Love that's deliberate. Love that's compassionate. Love that's sacrificial. Love that's costly. That's what Jesus is teaching us here in this parable. He's teaching us what it looks like to live and love as his disciples. 
And what you should recognize is the reality that, that this is an ethical guide for how we should live. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is telling us this is how you live as a disciple of Jesus, by loving others the way you love yourself, by loving God with everything you've got. But if that's all you see, you might fall into the trap of thinking that this is how we earn life. Remember the question the lawyer asked at the beginning, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like he starts by asking how he earns something that you cannot earn. He starts by asking, how do I earn an inheritance? You can't. But our love, our, our love it, it doesn't earn life. We can't earn life. We, we can't be good enough on our own. Our, our love is a response to the reality that God loved us first. I think sometimes when we read this parable, what happens is we read it and we try and put ourselves into the parable. And we ask, which one of the three am I? Am, am I the priest who crossed over to the other side of the road and went around? Am I like the Levite who saw the guy and crossed over to the other side of the road and went along? Or, or am I like the Samaritan, the one who actually helped we see the challenge and we ask ourselves, am I loving others? And that challenge is here. That's what Jesus is pressing us to see here. But, but if we're going to compare ourselves to anyone in this story, I think we'd be better served by remembering that before Jesus, we were in a lot of ways like the man beaten and dying on the side of the road. Before Christ, we were like the man that was injured on the side of the road. And, and Jesus is like the Samaritan. Because Jesus came and, and though we were his enemies, broken and dead in our trespasses and sin, he came to us. Like you recognize that. He came to you. He didn't come to, we didn't go to him. He came to us. He left the splendor and majesty of heaven. He put on flesh to live among us. To express this deliberate, compassionate, sacrificial, costly love for us. I love how Philippians chapter 2 describes what Jesus did. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus deliberately left the splendor and majesty of heaven to extend his love to us as the once-for-all sacrifice that would pay the price for our sin. It cost him everything. He gave up his life so that we could be restored and reconciled to God and made whole. Jesus' love, it's the greatest expression of love that you could ever experience. And once you've experienced that truth, once you've experienced his love, only then are you truly able to love the way he's commanding us to love here in this text. Which is why I think it's helpful to look at this and remember we were once the man on the side of the road as well. Our love for God expresses itself in a life that is marked by love for others. But it always starts 
with his love. He loved us first. There was nothing good in us that earned his love. We didn't do anything to make him love us. He loved us first. But because he did, but because he loved us and he sent his son to die for us, because of that, we're able to go out and love like he's commanded us. We're able to obey that second command in the text. We're able to hear Jesus say, you go and do likewise. So let's do that. Let's go and love well. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it calls us into. And as we're confronted with this reality that we, as your disciples, should live a life of loving others, I ask that you would help us to do that. I ask that you would help us to tear down any barriers that we might be inclined to set up that limit or, or govern how we love. Help us to love with a love that is deliberate and compassionate and sacrificial and costly. Help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus who take your love to others. Help us to live on mission for you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.